The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our siblings. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a sibling in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed and truth. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Micah Belong, the wise old Lama Envy, joined today by the wonderful Jeff, Laz, and Don. Now, it is my dear friends, uh, Jeff and Laz's first time on this podcast, Knocking on Wood, not the last time. Laz, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, I would love to. I'm so glad to be on here. Um, My name is Pastor Lazarus Jameson. You can call me Laz or Lazarus. Either way is fine. Um, my pronouns are they, them. I'm non-binary, kind of leaning trans mask. Uh, gender's in motion. You know, what do you do? I am um, the pastor of Lot's Wife Trans and Queer Chaplaincy here in St. Louis, Missouri, which is the center of the United States for um, our international folks, um, kind of the heart of what's considered the Midwest. There was an executive order through the attorney general that banned trans uh, health care for adults that's currently in court. So that's held up till uh, July and for kids. More likely to go into special session. And then there was also a bunch of things are the guy who pushes both the guns, a uh, bunch of the gun stuff and the anti-trans stuff is, you know, really in favor of early child marriage, um, you know, allowing it as young as 11 or 12. So he's also arguing about that a lot. So Missouri is a little bit of a mess, but I live in a deeply blue city in the middle of a red ocean. So it's a fascinating time to be here in Missouri. I serve uh, trans people primarily, um, as well as LGBTQ folks who don't kind of fit in other services. So like I serve a bunch of sex positive folks. I serve some of the leather community, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, et cetera, et cetera. So like lots of you know, neurodiverse, queer people, you know, poly folks, kind of everybody who doesn't fit somewhere else. Um, and it's beautiful and wonderful and great. I've been doing that for about five years. I uh, celebrated the fifth year of that, uh, of this ministry um, a couple of days ago. Oh, so I have a Master of Divinity from Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. I come from a fundamentalist Christian background, uh, so I was in a cult uh, for quite a while and then um, <laughs> left that through a series of circumstances. But when I got out, I ran to the incredibly comparatively progressive um, Southern Baptists. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, from that point kind of went on a wild trajectory, you know, more progressive. I... Um, trained Unitarian Universalist and Progressive Christian in seminary. Um, many of the people that I serve are non-religious, but I am their pastor, and you know we all make it work, right? And doing a lot of interfaith work lately, it's really beautiful. I am, you know, a happy union member, deeply committed to workers' rights, and like really a liberation process, liberation theologian in doing community chaplaincy. Like, 
I believe that the gospel is a message of liberation for the marginalized and that it has to therefore be good news. And so we're pointing, you know, toward doing justice to bring about the, the work of, of God in the world. If you are in Missouri or around Missouri and you are interested in trying to organize with other people of faith, contact Laz. They are your best point of contact for for winning this fight. So yeah, please get in contact with me. It's easy to get a hold of me on I'm on this Discord, um, but also I'm easily found on Facebook. Um, so connect with me, and I'm happy to get you plugged into all of our organizing networks. They're the only Lazarus I know who hasn't come back from the dead. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I chose that name because I'm a non-binary person and can, right? And I chose that name, I think, because I've lived through a bunch of different resurrections. You know, my life is ever um, being remolded. And so it felt like an appropriate, beautiful name. I think that we were friends when you when you chose that new name. And as soon as you did, it was like, ah, oh, yes, that fits so well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that was wonderful. And, and Jeff, tell us a little bit about you, what you're doing these days, what brings you here, and how we can connect with you. Yeah, so uh, my name is Jeff. I am a pastor way up in Canada, out of Toronto. I'm not currently pastoring. I was the pastor of Chosen Family Church, which was an online digital ministry uh, we ran a bi-weekly church service for queer people and their allies. I am a queer person myself. I identify. If you want the, the technical label, I'm a panromantic demisexual and I'm non-binary. But I just say queer because that's just a heck of a lot easier than having to explain <laughs> the asexuality spectrum to people. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of where I am. I, I stepped down from that role at the very beginning of this year, passed the reins off to an amazing colleague of ours named Ronnie. Pastor Ronnie, who's doing a fantastic job with the church, uh, keeping it going from there. I was doing a lot of work with helping people unpack their spiritual trauma and religious trauma. And sort of just what that looked like was these sort of virtual, I, don't, I, I hesitate to call them counseling sessions because I don't have any counseling training, but these virtual coaching sessions or, or just talks basically where people would say, all of the reasons why they were afraid God was going to squash them like a bug. And I would correct the theology around that <laughs> and help them be able to accept themselves a little bit better and learn to love themselves and love their neighbor. But in doing that, I uncovered all new layers of my own religious trauma that I didn't know about. So I'm taking a short break. I'm not, I'm not sure how to identify anymore because, I mean, for the longest time, I kind of stopped shied away from the term pastor and started referring to myself as a wandering wizard. Um, <laughs> and, <off>. uh, <laughs> and I, I don't like, I think if anyone was God incarnate, it was definitely Jesus. But what I actually believe has become quite complicated around that. And in large part due to the passage that we are reading today around Melchizedek. So that'll be a fun thing to get into. Fun side note, I've had beef with uh, Lazarus's home state for 30 years, uh, <laughs> not because of any of the twisted, awful laws that they've been passing uh, or the way that they're treating trans people, but because when I was eight, I went on a cave tour in Missouri and I uh, got mud all over my Aladdin shoes and I had to throw them out. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So in the meantime, though, since I've left Chosen Family Church, uh, I work as a, a an autism support worker. I'm a, an autistic person myself, uh, so I feel like I have a unique 
ability to do that work well. And uh, I'm drawing a comic actually right now about autistic superheroes not playing into the autism is a superpower um, trope, which I find is quite ableist, but it's actually a indictment of a society that uplifts people in marginalized groups for inspiration porn and then refuses to actually meet any of their support needs. So the first issue of that is out on my website, jeffbakerdraws.com. Um, and the, I'm working on the second issue right now. So I'm hoping to get that out. Longtime listener, you will know that a couple episodes ago, uh, Ronnie, who is currently the pastor of Chosen Family Church, was here as well. And so you get to see both sides of the era of Chosen Family Church here um, in this podcast, which is awesome. Yeah. Both of them are dear friends. And not just because Jeff is one of my favorite human beings, but because it is legitimately awesome. Everyone should go and read that comic on that website. As someone who doesn't experience life with autism, it was really helpful to drag myself out of my perspective and look at things more across a wide spectrum of autistic experiences. Very useful and also really entertaining and really well done and really well drawn. So <laughs> so if you're at all interested in comic books, go ahead and give that a follow. Now, I will also say that I have been accused of heresy on this podcast and uh, good, I probably am, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't go searching it out. I just go searching out different opinions and tonight we're going to be able to experience one of those different opinions as we see this journey that Jeff is on, um, that I think is really something that uh, will be fun to explore. Look, you need a little bit of heresy to spice up your day. Okay? Exactly. That's like all of the game changers were heretics. You think <laughs> like John the Baptist forgiving people's sins through baptism. That's not a thing in Judaism. Like that, that's not a thing in second temple Judaism. That's a total heretic. Martin Luther, total <laughs> heretic to the Catholic church, all the game changers we're total heretics, so you're in good company. I've been accused of being a heretic numerous times, uh, especially on TikTok. So it's what I call a Tuesday. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think all of us living our lives gets us accused of being heretics. But those yeah. same people, you know, would also call Jesus a heretic, right? Yes, because, exactly. Yeah. You know, Jesus doesn't follow the gender roles and yep. Jesus doesn't uh, say the sinner's prayer. You know, cishet, white, male. Let me tell you, I got to work three times as hard to be called a heretic. And I'm really annoyed about that. <laughs> <laughs> break, break the heretic glass ceiling. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> If you weren't all the way in Japan, if you happen to make it to Missouri, I would love to put you up to, you know, give the cishet white man perspective on, like, why trans people are worthy of not dying. And then, um, you know, they would then label you as a heretic. So if you want it, all you have to do is come here. Look, look, two points I'm going to put out here just because they need to be said. First off, Jesus was trans. We all know that. Let's just get that one out the way right off the bat. Second thing, uh, I'm going to go ahead and add on to the Missouri shade because my wife started her her uh, studying in English career in Missouri as well in a podunk town in the middle of nowhere out there. And let me tell you, there's nothing in that state. So I'm going to just throw some shade at Missouri just for the <laughs> shits and giggles of it as well, as long as we're here. Which brings me back to uh, to the Bible. And therefore, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. Genesis 14. While Amraphal was king of Shinar, Elassar's king Ariok, Elam's king Chedlamar, and Goyim's king Tidal, declared war on Sodom's king Bera, Gomorrah's king Bersha, Adma's king Shinab, Zeboim's king Shebabir, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. These latter kings formed an alliance in the Sidim Valley, that is, the Dead Sea. 
For twelve years they had served Cherelomir, and in the thirteenth year they revolted. In the fourteenth year Cherelomir and the kings of his alliance came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kirathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back, came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazanan, Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Bera, that is Zoar, took up battle positions in the Sidim Valley against King Chedalamar of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Ariok of Elsar, four kings against five. Now the Sidim Valley was full of tar pits. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah retreated, they fell into them, and the rest fled to the mountain. They took everything from Sodom and Gomorrah, including its food supplies, and left. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and everything he owned, and took off. When a survivor arrived, he told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks of the Amorite Mamre, who was the brother of Eshkol and Aner, Abram's treaty partners. When Abram heard that his relative had been captured, he took all of the loyal men born in his household, 318, and went after them as far as Dan. Chasing the night, he and his servants divided themselves up against them, attacked and chased them to Hobah, north of Damascus. He brought back all of the looted property, together with his relative Lot and Lot's properties, wives, and people. After Abram returned from his attack on Chedalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom came out to the Shavah Valley, that is, the king's valley, to meet him. Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of El Elyon, had brought bread and wine, and blessed him. Bless Abram by El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. Bless El Elyon, who gave you the victory over your enemies. Abram gave Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and take the property for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I promised the Lord El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, that I wouldn't take even a thread or a sandal strap from anything that was yours, so that you couldn't say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. The only exception is that the young men may keep whatever they have taken to eat, and the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, may keep their share. So this is a weird little little story <laughs> um, that that's happening here in this part. You get a little bit of inter-Canaanite conflict that's happening here, the, the four kings against five. And it's really important to the story that these kings are remembered in their specific terms and names. And this is all described in a very specific way. And then you have Abram, uh, who shows up and apparently has as many men on hand as one of these nations, or or possibly as many as five of the cities. Um, <laughs> and he goes and just squashes all these people. And then some random priest that we haven't heard about before and won't hear about again until the New Testament comes and blesses him with bread and wine. And then he gives Melchizedek a, a tenth of everything he owns, and the king of Sodom tries to give him everything, and Abram refuses it, which is, uh, from what we've learned about Abram so far, pretty damn out of character. Um, <laughs> so, what are y'all's thoughts on this weird inter-Canaanite uh, battle happening here? One of the things I, I find really interesting about Genesis in particular, sometimes I feel like it's written like Pilgrim's Progress, where like the people's names are so like spot on like like that was really on the nose but also other times i'm like do they like did they just run out of names for people and and so like with the the flood narrative and like noah's sons 
like one of his sons is named Shem, which literally just means name. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, his sons were uh, Ham and uh, <laughs> was it Japheth? I can't remember. Yeah, even yeah, Japheth. And, and and what's his name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the other one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, like here, like one of the kings is uh, title King of Goyim, like. Title the king of that place, the nations, wherever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem rather random. I think it's setting up a lot of geography. Contextually, Lazarus messaged me earlier today asking what we were going to talk about, uh, like what we should talk about for this. Uh, and I mentioned the Oaks of Mamre, thinking that the, this was in the same passage. And I, the part I was thinking of is actually the the verse before. So like contextually, Abram just ha- ha- has just had sort of a return to Eden moment where, where God kind of invites him back into the act of creation. And so like the, the word Mamre also, again, just spot on the nose, uh, it means to see. Uh, so he, him sitting in the Oaks of seeing in the, the middle of the day where he has a vision of God who appears to him. And in the Eden narrative, uh, God appears in the wind of the day, and then at the Oaks of Mamre, he appears in the heat of the day, and then sort of instructs Abram a little bit and gives him a better idea, I guess, of who he's supposed to be, because then he goes out into into this narrative, and yeah, he acts slightly out of character, but I think it's because he's just been invited into this this act of uh, creation, into living into who who God actually wants him to be. Going back to the um, the fact that these names are all a little bit weird, we have uh, uh, Cheddar Lomer, whose name literally means like roundness of a sheaf in Hebrew, which doesn't make much sense. But in Elamite, another ancient Near Eastern tribe, it could mean servant of the high goddess uh, Lagomar, which like would mean servant of this goddess that exists. And so it could be a proper compound word from another language that's copied into this that basically means that, that the servant of El has defeated the servant of this other god and goes back to one of the interpretations that long-time listeners will remember of Genesis, where Genesis 1 is just God proving how much more powerful God is than the other gods of the area. I will say, in my usual uh, plug that I'm hoping someday I get paid for, Robert Alter's uh, translation and commentary, it's the bomb, it's amazing. I'm looking at that in the notes here, and he goes ahead and makes a mention of the fact that pretty much from verse 3 out, it switches to a usage of uh, military and political terminology that's not consistent with the rest of the text. And so looking at a lot of the stuff we're talking about here, like about uh, Cheddar Laumer and all of these other guys uh, having these different kind of social and political alliance aspects here, there is a theory that I've heard bantered about, and this, this theory doesn't come from Alters, but does seem somewhat supported, that what we're seeing here is almost a record of a series of known military actions for the region into which Abram is later inserted to make that part of the story. Because this is this reads like a military historical record uh, that Abraham or Abram kind of just pops into like, you know, Proud Boy fan fiction or something. <laughs> and except it's really farcical, right? Like this geography is bananas because <laughs> like, we have the Dead Sea next to giant tar pits that suck people in next to <laughs> hills that we hills so full of mines. We, you know, 
like hidden caves we just get to run into them and somehow you can traverse between all these things and like everyone dies in the tar pits except when we're escaping as because we're the good guys like yeah <laughs> I, I feel like this is like we're we're playing um ancient like sim city with this kind of <laughs> you know and we're not very good at it right well i will say i think there's a po- there's a point to that because one of the things I, I talk about and i talked about this back on my own podcast when we were here doing this one is that you know History, particularly for this period, isn't objective. It's, you know, uh, history is basically competing fanfics at this point. So I I almost wonder if this isn't like Abrams or Abrams tribes recollection of this series of historical events that kind of just jams them into the middle of it, dials it up to 11, you know, puts on a sick guitar riff and says, look at what we did. Well, and I think also like, so like the, the, the interesting thing about Melchizedek is I I really feel like this section is slightly retconning events so that people can feel better about the conquest of Jerusalem post David because like so so Melchizedek is the king of Salem which is proto Jerusalem at this point his name is actually Theophoric uh, for the god Zedek who is uh, god of justice Melchizedek the name means my king is Zedek and so uh, the fact that Melchizedek is uh, worshiping a priest of El Elyon at this point and like El Elyon uh, just means the most high God. It's specified here that he's the creator of heaven and earth, but would clearly be a different named God anyway than who Abraham has been serving. And this is also sort of one of the moments where we see the the crossing and the updating or, or retconning of the pre-first temple Judaism, according to the historical record, served El. And Yahweh was, whose name I, tr- I do try not to say unless I'm speaking more academically, Yahweh was was a smaller subset within the First Temple Jewish people that was later become more popularized and things were sort of rewritten. So what we see during the conquest of David of Jerusalem is we start seeing the language of the god Sedek being adopted into Yahwistic theology as an attribute. And it's sort of this thing that is done in ancient cultures. When you conquer a people, you convince them that the god that they worship is actually the same god you worship. It's a very common ancient tactic. You move in, you say, oh, you worship the god of the sea, so do we. We call him Poseidon. Let's set up a temple to Poseidon. And it's a way of pacifying the people that you are invading. Uh, Famously, the uh, Seleucids tried to do this to the Jewish people and sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple to the god Jupiter, which uh, led to the Maccabean Revolt. Um, So it didn't work out that time, but it is a very common tactic. So we see it happening actually during David's conquest of Jerusalem, where we see the god Sedek, and Sedek has a twin brother named Mishor, and uh, Mishor and Sedek become attributes of God. Sedek becomes the righteous right hand of Yahweh uh, in Scripture, around the time of David, worked into the Psalms and other places. And so, I think this is a little bit of a retconning of that, trying to say, like, here we can see this this priests of Tzedek acting in service to El Elyon, who we're now going to associate with Yahweh, and seeing that, yes, he has this theophoric name, my king is Tzedek, but Tzedek, as we know, is an attribute. It's the right hand of God. He serves God. Abraham offers him a tithe, so he, he has to be serving the God that we all serve, too. Otherwise, Abraham wouldn't have done that. And and so, I think, Micah, you're onto something where 
Kedar Leomer is a theophoric name to another god, and the fact that Melchizedek is one of the kings that Abram goes up against, I, I think Abram is being inserted into this sort of military record as a way of being like, look, we've always been on the same side, guys. Like, I think it's part of that campaign to sort of retcon Zedek and Mishor into attributes of the divine that would make the god of Israel more palatable to the people of Jerusalem that they were invading. But that's the opposite of a liberation message, right? Like, for sure. <laughs> uh, colon, like, we're literally trying to sell colonizer language and like taking their God. So like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's an endorsable practice or something we should be doing. It's just, <laughs> it's just something that was done. And I think that's sort of what, what is going on here. So Kedar Lamar is servant of this other God. You see the next king, Amraphel. It's unclear, but it probably means something like someone who perverts counsel um, or a dark counsel, bad advice. Um, you hear Arioch, which is lion-like or uh, a gathering of lions. Um, so like for that, for a king would be a really big warrior title. Title, the king of the, the Goyim, um, is like splendor or high praise or thanksgiving. So like the splendor of the nations um, would be his title. Uh, Barah. Barah is a word that's a little bit opaque. It probably means something like gift, which is interesting here when we talk about uh, the fact that the king of Sodom tries to give away everything that's in Sodom except for the people. And so it's interesting that the name there is just playing a little bit of a trick on us. <laughs> um, versus Bershah, which just means evil or a son who beholds. You remember back to Ham. Ham is a Bershah. He is a son who beholds the nakedness of his father, right? And so there are connections here being made. And then uh, Shinab is the father of changing. And uh, Shemaber is name of the strong, the mighty. And so you have these various names of kings that are supposed to show the might of themselves or the might of other nations and the glory of these things that are all playing a part here in this story to show, well, actually, our God is mightier than that God, right? Our God is above all of these mighty kings who try to do all these crazy things that our God is the one who ends up coming in and conquering those. And Lazarus, I think that that's a fantastic point that this is, we can absolutely read this story as imperialistic and trying to show my God beat your God and, you know, and, and actually your God was just part of my God in the first place. But I also want to offer that perhaps that the, the merger of the gods of El and Yahweh, which again, I, I use Yahweh to differentiate the God that I worship from the ancient Israelite God. The difference between El and Yahweh being merged was probably the coming together of two distinct people groups who were united in a new political ideology because they saw each other's gods as the same being, right? And so I absolutely hear that perspective and want to push back on ways that our God conquering your God is, you know, a, a tool of imperialism that is that happens in you know the United States all the time. That was just brought up to justify the invasion of Iraq and most of the Middle East, right? But also say that from peoples who are already being oppressed, that unity within those groups might also lead to a blending of these cultures um, in a way that I think is really beautiful. Yeah, and like taking that perspective, Micah, if this is rising from the oppressed people, right? I wanting to do theology from the underside, like theology that prioritizes the um, perspective and needs of those which are at the most oppressed point, right? 
so given that perspective, right, if like that, like that's what you're arguing here. And if that's the case, I'm looking at I'm really into the Bittenman pits, y'all. Yeah. Like, I just think it's super <laughs> weird and cool. But anyway, so I'm looking at verse 10 and the translation, I'm looking at the updated NRSV and it says, now the Valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And so like, look, I understand that we have some fantastic Hebrew scholars and like in this, I am not, I'm a community chaplain who deals with like <laughs> ordinary, like, like the ordinary and extraordinary with trans folks, right? But the way that that sure reads in that translation and the version that you all read, this seems to say not that the oppressed people were falling into the pits, though maybe that's given, but like that that it's literally pointing out here, right? That it's the kings that are falling into these pits. So like, you know, if we're talking about this uniting of the gods um, into one, a recognition of like their shared identity or whatever, right? By the oppressed people for collective action, then the gods might be on board because it's their kings. You know, there are gods, God is yet again on the side of the people because their kings fall into the pits while the people continue on, right? Even cooler to to back that up, I'm, I'm going to throw Alter's translation under the bus here again. I'm going to read from Alter's translation. It makes one particular change in here that just made me giggle listening to your interpretation. And it says, let's see. Four kings against the five. And the valley of Siddim was riddled with bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled there and leapt into them. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's wild. Okay, can you talk about, again, I'm a, I, I don't mind being our everyman. Um, you know, I have lots of education, but again, I'm a chaplain and not a scholar. Can you talk, what is a bit, like, I, like, I, like, I think of, like, the, the United States as, like, the, La Brea tar pits out in California. And that's what I think of when we're looking at these, but like they clearly are pits of something that kills them. Are they like sulfur pits or are they like tar pits or what? What, is, what on earth is a bitumen pit actually? I mean, you're dealing here linguistically with something that is, and I'm, I'm going to use a, a very technical term here. Uh, fuck if I know. <laughs> uh, that's pretty like bitumen pits is a fair translation. It's probably something like a tar pit. I uh, maybe a sulfur pit. Uh, geographically in the region, the, it's probably something connected to like underground hot springs or something like that, which means it's probably going to be analogous to some kind of tar pit. But, you know, we do know that things involving uh, sulfur and high heat and Sodom and Gomorrah are a recurring theme here. So make of that what you will. So in that translation, then, are you is is Alder pushing us toward not just that this is like the, the the power of the people is so recognized that the kings give up and just wither and die. Like how much how much union power is happening as we combine forces <laughs> with the uh, with the gods? In Alter's defense, his his goal here is linguistic, less than interpretive. He's focusing on, on making a poetically accessible version of the Old Testament that is extremely consistent with Hebrew scholastics here. So. I don't know that there's as much interpretation happening here, but he is going for as clear of a picture as he can to the source material. That being said, I would say that the source material is, as Chief Miles Edward O'Brien and his many ancestors, a union man through and through. <laughs> nice. The Hebrew word here is chemar, and a lot of the translations I'm seeing for it are either slime, asphalt, uh, or bitumen, but the the verb means to ferment, boil, or foam up, and can often be even used to describe uh, different types of water. And if we're operating within Genesis 
symbolism. The water is is the primordial chaos, uh, especially when it's bubbling and churning, right? Like the the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and stirred it up. And so it could be that in their retreat. They are hurling themselves into these pits of chaos, sort of as an image of some kind of punishment. Like I'm, I, I don't, I'm, I'm a universalist. I don't believe in hell, but that imagery certainly exists throughout uh, in the Tanakh, specifically the pits uh, of chaos, especially the fact that it is referred to as a pit as well. Like the pit is commonly associated with Sheol. Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish or the serpent, whichever, whether you're reading it in Greek or Hebrew, <laughs> like we can, we can read it straightforward. Um, and and they're hazardous pits that people fall into. But I think there's also some imagery that we can uh, evoke if we want to read a little more creatively. This goes back to um, Melchizedek, right? Where my God is justice, right? I really like the idea that Zedek is, what we know about Zedek is that there is a corresponding deity in the Babylonian pantheon called Kitu and Isar in the Amorite pantheon. And so it's very possible, and, and it's also possible that this is the sun god of the Mesopotamian Shamash, right? Um, so those are three different gods that sort of correspond to what we think is probably the existence of an independent god Zedek. But I'm not confident enough to say that Zedek is their own god. <laughs> but all of that to say, it's really important that my god is justice, is the ruler of the city of peace, right? That justice and peace are not separate ideas in this story, that justice and peace go hand in hand, and that the person whose god is justice says, El Elyon, the highest god, the god that in this story is clearly correlating to the god that is about to give a covenant with Abram, that that god is a god of justice and peace, and the interrelatedness of those two concepts. I want to preface this by saying I am a thousand percent not an Abram fan. This is a dude who sold his wife into sex slavery multiple times just for the lulls and or profits, so I'm not going to be on board with the guy. But in this particular moment, he does a little bit of linguistic wise-assery here that I kind of like, and I'm going to read this right out of, out of uh, Alter's commentary here, where he notes that El is the proper name of the sky god in the Canaanite pantheon, and Elion is a distinct associated deity, and the two are appearing here as a compound name, but the two terms are also plain Hebrew words that mean God the Most High, and elsewhere are used separately or at one time together as designations for the God of Israel. So whatever Melchizedek's theology might have been, Abraham here is elegantly co-opting him for monotheism by using El Elyon in its orthodox Israelite sense when addressing the king of Sodom. So it's a little bit of kind of complex linguistic trickery here that I'm like, okay, I love a good play on words, and props to Abram here for kind of turning that on its head. It's, I, I like the linguistics of it. It's kind of fun. And that actually plays into what I was going to say, and tying this back, because earlier Lazarus was saying that like what I was saying promotes more colonialism than justice and mercy and lifting up the marginalized, but it, it is actually the story of Melchizedek that gives me more hope for the uplifting of the marginalized, even though I think what is being done with the story overall is an act of colonization and it's bad. In my personal reading uh, of it, I see Abraham recognizing, or Abram at this point, recognizing the spark of the divine in Melchizedek, even though they worship gods possibly of different names. Abram is seeing this priest who could arguably be a priest of Zedek and recognizing that he, he serves 
God Most High, and seeing the intention behind the worship as being the unifying factor. And it's sort of like how, like, so I, I made friends online with a person of the Sikh faith named Nub the Poet, and we had a conversation on a podcast I was doing a few years ago, and I titled the episode, Same, because we kept explaining what we believed, and it was so similar. And I was like, I'm... 90% sure Nub and I worship the same God, and Franklin Graham and I do not, right? Even though Franklin Graham and I call our gods by the same name, I recognize the God I worship in the God that Nub is talking about. And so I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. And seeing the theme of justice and mercy flowing through Melchizedek and the righteous way that he serves his God, whatever that name may be, whether it is or it is L, or it is L L Yon, or there is this linguistic thing happening here, and basically like ties into if we can throw it back to New Testament theology for a second, the fact that Jesus is like, you will know my disciples by their love, and I think that is a lot of what's happening here. Is Abraham pays tithe to Melchizedek because he recognizes that he is a disciple of the same God that he is being called to serve. To apply this teaching to the modern realm, then it basically follows that. God doesn't really give a shit if you call yourself Christian, so long as you act the part. Absolutely. Yeah, and, I think, I think, and like, there are many who would call us heretics for saying so, but I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> and look just for the definition of the word. Christian is Christ-like. It is not yeah. believes in the, in the uh, intellectual uh, tradition and creedal theology of a specific branch of, you know, of, of a religion. It means like Jesus. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. how, how do we get off saying that Christianity is about a series of beliefs when Jesus's actions prove that it is acting like you love people and actually doing that love? I just think it opens up this possibility that it's not just about the word Christian, but in fact, it says like, you know, this story clearly demonstrates that there are multiple paths to following the divine well, right? And that perhaps using those linguistic things we talked about, that the right path to, you know, doing the work of the divine is, you know, actively pursuing and doing and embodying justice as a mode to peace. And if that's the case, you can call the divine all kinds of things and, you know, have systems with or without that. And that definitely gets me called a heretic, right? In lots of Christian circles when I say, ah, <laughs> I love Jesus. I find the story of Jesus deeply moving, but I'm not convinced that it's the story you also must follow, right? Right. And much less like, interpersonal evangelism, like that pulls us away from interpersonal evangelism, but actually too saying like, actually there are truths about the way that you follow your gods. Like we might be able to say we can follow the same path. Like we're, we are on similar trajectories of trying to do justice and using the stories that animate our culture and our traditions to do so, right. To, to lead to God in, the, in, in peace. But like, it might also be that in fact, like, it's not just, I shouldn't personally evangelize, but in fact, this pulls us to a, like, you have truths and ways of being that don't belong to me, but that are beautiful in their own. But also, you know, like, I don't know, I could use this sort of, I could, I could start arguing, you know, this kind of point about why Christian satyrs are bad, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we cannot have a satyr for Jesus. 
So I come from a fundamentalist tradition, the Southern Baptist, like I said in my introduction, you know, were my jump step away from fundamentalism. And I spent my first semester of seminary at a Southern Baptist school uh, called South uh, Eastern Baptist Theological School. It was a fascinating cultural anthropology experiment where they congratulated, you know, I was, I'm assigned female at birth and they congratulated all of us women, you know, after we signed up for like advanced Greek and all this kind of mess, like all just incredibly difficult early seminary classes. You know, they congratulated us on following our call all the way through being pastor's wives. And I about panicked. Um, And so, and you know, we learned a lot of biblical literalism, right? You know, and um, because that was basically the mode of of doing inerrancy and all these things. But what I'm really trying to say with that is that, like, there's a movement within those circles, and probably I bet in some of the RCA, you know, like if like it catches some of our more conservative folks, they like me aren't scholars of the Hebrew Bible, right? You know, and we love Jesus. So we're really, really, really tempted to read Jesus because I love Jesus and I have Jesus that lives in my heart and these texts we share. So I'm really tempted to read my Jesus into these texts that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And so like the professor, the head of my seminary had was um, in process. Danny Aiken was working on this commentary where his whole goal was that every little pericope, every little section of text Um, would have commentary about why it tells you directly about Jesus, which is like the absolute worst interpretive lens. (laughs) In the academic field of of biblical studies, we have a word for that, and that word is eisegesis. And it's literally (laughs) one of the first things they tell you not to do when reading the goddamn Bible. That word is literally, I see Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I absolutely am right there with you, Laz. First off, I do want to read Jesus into this text because I think that early Christians, as they're writing the New Testament, are reading this text. And they are reading this, they are reading Melchizedek onto the person that they know as Jesus. And so I absolutely hear you. And also, we belong to a tradition, right, that does use this text as as an understanding of Jesus. And I think that I believe that my God is so powerful that my God is truth, and wherever truth exists, my God is there. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and we can talk about whether or not that's imperialistic or whether or not that's all of us sharing an understanding of a being that's far too great for any of us to have a monopoly on truth for. But if you take the Bible seriously, if you if you believe in what the Gospels are saying, it's really hard for me to come away from those texts and think that there's anybody who's left outside of God's love, that there's anyone who doesn't get saved by God's all-encompassing redemption. And I think that we see in this story what that looks like. What does redemption actually look like? It looks like the person whose God is justice, who is the king of peace, and the priest of the Most High, who comes and brings bread and wine, right? Who comes and brings our basic necessities and blesses us through it. And that's the only reason that I I would ever feel like I need to evangelize to anyone. And I don't. Like, to be clear, I'm not out here saying, you got to become a Christian and, you know, you got to do this, you got to believe that, because I have a lot to learn from people who are not Christians. And I think that in the end, God loves you anyway, no matter what you believe, for better or for worse. And God is going to take care of things in the end. But I think that for my neighbors, who are experiencing a lack of some sort of miracle in their life, a lack of connection to to the divine, the way that I see that miracle is every Sunday I go to church and I believe that Christ is literally there in the bread and wine that I take. And that is the blessing to me, that I receive this grace in this moment that is peace 
and justice that is holistic, that brings me along. And that is the case that I make for anyone to become a Christian. Not because I think that I am ontologically right, not because I think that I'm philosophically the most well-defended, not because I think I'm theologically completely sound, but because I think everyone should have a miracle. Everyone should experience grace. And Abram, the asshole, just like me, (laughs) the asshole, shows up here, does nothing to have deserved this, except show up after this battle, meets Melchizedek where he is, and gets blessed by this grace. And this is Micah from the future future, here to say that this has been a wonderful conversation that continues on in part two. You'll see 11.5 dropping in your podcast feeds next week. This has been a wonderful conversation, and we didn't want to cut out any one of the wonderful things that we talk about. So make sure you tune in next week. Now, past, past Micah. Take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past past Micah. Now, my friends, go and build a peace. A peace not rooted on the fear of war, but a peace based on justice. Shalom. Shalom.